Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Filson and Efish and Foraged Market this season. This season is going to be super diverse. You're going to see all kinds of different aspects of preservation, ranging from drying fish to old Italian methods of preservations to fermentation to salami to things like freeze drying. You name it. We're going to cover it and, and we're going to have a great time doing it. This particular episode, this debut, I am going to be talking with Jess Pryles. Jess Pryles runs Hardcore Carnivore, and she is a barbecue expert, a meat expert, originally from Australia. She now lives in Austin, Texas, and is one of the better barbecue meat scientist kind of people you're ever going to find. She's also super entertaining, and she and I are going to talk all about dry aging meat today. Dry aging is a huge topic. It is a topic that has a lot of myths about it and a lot of misinformation that we are going to hopefully clear up. Mostly we're going to be talking about dry aging big game and beef. So there would be a little bit of talk about things like birds and small mammals, but mostly we're going to be talking about venison, beef, bison, elk, moose, caribou, all of that sort of stuff. So without further ado, let's start season four. Jess Pryles, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I'm very, very happy to finally get to talk to you because you and I have been sort of internet friends for a while and because we both do things that we, you know, I like your work and I suspect that you are mildly interested in what I do and <laughs> it, it's really great to have you on the show. That's a delicate understatement, Hank, but thank you so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, long time listener, long time admirer, first time chatter, I guess we would say. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, um, I remember looking up your recipes when I first started getting into hunting, um, cause it was something that was new to me. And so, yeah, it's great to be here. Finally. I know you as kind of the Australian Texan barbecue queen, but you have, uh, that, that is only an incomplete picture. So tell us a little bit more about what you do. Uh, you know, you have a company now and obviously a very successful website and so on. Yeah, it's, uh, I wish I had a great version of my own elevator pitch but sometimes I'm like oh man I, I have done a lot that's cool but effectively yeah I I am a live fire cook I have a company called Hardcore Carnivore really my story is just that I loved eating meat and I didn't really know how to cook it and then over the years I sort of started unlocking all of these secrets that aren't really secrets and you're like huh that's actually easier than I thought and then I shared that knowledge with other people um, which really resonated so um, I even went so far as to get really in involved slash obsessed in the meat science side of things and went back to school two years ago to do a graduate program in meat science at Iowa State University. So delving a little bit into that part of things as well. Go Cyclones. Yes, exactly. Which is really tough when you live in Texas, honestly. Ish. I mean, I mean, uh, unless uh, that's right. You, you, you actually live in Austin, don't you? I live in Austin and I'm married to an Aggie. So it's like a compounded issue. Yeah, but Aggies, that's fine because they don't, they're not in the big 12, but the, the, the Longhorns are with the, with the Cyclones. So that can be a problem. Yes. I actually went to the game this year and felt very, very conflicted. <laughs> I actually ran a track meet at Iowa state one year, many years ago. Um, and they, they deserve their name. Uh, one half of the track, the headwind was so strong that it basically stopped us in our tracks. We had to kind of you know, fight our way through it until we got to the other turn where we had this massive headwind. So I'm like, huh, cyclones makes that makes sense. <laughs> I've been to campus once and I mean, it, it's a beautiful school, but 
yeah, it, it was very much, I remember driving from Des Moines to Ames and just being like, okay, cornfield, 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 pig truck, pig truck, pig truck. They weren't kidding. Okay. It really is just corn and pigs. Corn and pigs. And yep. you know, bullheads. Yes. And bullheads, <laughs> of course. So I used to live in Minnesota and so there's all these big 10 rivalries too. Then this would be with Iowa is that, ah, the Iowans, all they do is, you know, eat, eat hogs and grow corn and, and catch bullheads. Whereas the Minnesotans would catch the majestic walleye and such. And so there's you, you, I am, I am out when it comes to all things fish, but I will definitely <laughs> take your word for it. So I brought you on today because you are, especially because of the meat science thing, because I, I know, dry aging uh, red meats and and birds and other animals is from experience and from reading scientific papers, but I don't have any kind of formal schooling in it. And so I figured between the two of us, we could really explain to people, you know, why you would want to dry age, how you go about it. Uh, what are some of the pitfalls? What are some of the, the things that like danger, 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 and also really kind of how to go about it uh, in a home setup because it's, it can be easy in some respects and particularly difficult in others, depending on what you, you want to achieve. So figured we'd just dive right into it. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. So your main experience is, is red meat in general and beef in specific, right? Yeah, beef is my biggest interest, especially when it comes to dry aging. And actually, as part of my course, obviously, you know, we, we, we don't, in, in a graduate course, that's sort of just a certificate. You don't get to dive extremely deeply. So a lot of the stuff that I've read is same as you, just access to scientific papers that you read and someone else has done the research and you sort of get up to date on it. But uh, for one of my classes, I did do a literature review on a lot of the stuff out there about dry aging. So the title was In Pursuit of Flavor, A Critical Review of Dry Aged Beef Studies. Um, but that's, yeah, that's definitely the area that I'm most fascinated with, because in my opinion, it's the protein that can kind of gain the most from it. I mean, I think venison can too, but there are so many other factors that, are, that, I mean, for diving in, let's just dive in. For me personally, I mooch off my friend's leases, so I don't even have a cool room to hang a deer. So there's your first barrier to entry, you know? Let's start a little bit higher up. So I have heard dry aging and and hanging birds. I've heard it called controlled rot, which mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure I agree with because correct me if I'm wrong, but aging in general and dry aging in specific is more enzymatic than it is bacterial. Yeah, but it, it is generally accepted to be, at least I accept it to be um, controlled decomposition because you're basically slowing the rate of decomposition. So it's not that you're encouraging it. It's rather that you're, you're trying to, you're not even trying to retard it because we're not adding anything to it specifically to retard that, uh, that situation. But part of those enzymes that develop are part of decomposition because mm. they're breaking the actin myosin bonds. So it's delicious. It's, it's delicious entropy. It is. Well, here, the, here's the thing. This is what I tell people. Everything, when you talk particularly about beef tenderness, the, the, the whole idea of chasing the tenderness, and even to this relates certainly to deer as well, is trying to undo rigor mortis. That's the whole thing. So it, it's the pursuit of undoing rigor, which, which in itself will be, you know, to get through rigor, the next stage is the next stage of de decomposition. 
Right, right. So I think even before you can even think about dry aging anything, everybody listening out there is there are really only two choices if you want delicious meat is you can you can do something that has the slightly uh, snickering Beavis and Butthead name of hot boning, which is to say shoot something or kill something and then and then butcher it immediately before it gets into rigor. Or you have to wait because if you if you try to butcher something when it's in rigor mortis, you can get something called shortening. That's no good because it's it can be fiendishly difficult to to counteract that. The shortening actually is related as well to the pH level um, and the rate of decline of temperature of the carcass. Mm -hmm. So with hot boning, it's actually less preferable for and it's less practical and i'm talking more in processed meat because that's more of my experience or rather commercial meat production hot boning is usually definitely done for sausages so most of your breakfast sausage and stuff will be hot boned because it it has a better emulsification property it has better water holding capacity it holds color better it's just much more desirable for literally processed meats but for steaks and what have you they're nearly never hot boned but they are there is a there is that ratio of of ph and time in the chiller and and there's both hot and cold shortening that can occur and the biggest things that we're looking out for with shortening as the name would suggest are that tightening of the muscle but it also is a a, a water holding capacity issue um, and, and I've seen it a lot, in, particularly with venison as well. There's such specifics in terms of, if we think about it, cattle, if you're at a processing plant, you know, that animal is knocked or dispatched. And then in a side of beef being pushed into the cooler in the larger plants in just a few minutes. And that's going to make a much bigger difference to when you're one person kind of trying to go it alone. So you're going to start that cooling and, and, um, have less chance of that shortening as well. Hmm. This is going to be a fascinating conversation because there's a lot, uh, I know a lot through experience and, and you have a lot more, um, I don't know, institutional knowledge that, uh, I can definitely, I'm, I'm digging this so far. So, so yay. Good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, and that's uh, what cold shortening in particular is what made me extra fascinated about, really wanting to get into to the meat science factor of it because you know as cooks at the end of the day Hank I would imagine that we're where we are where we are because we love to eat and we love recipes and I love watching all of your exploration of Mexican flavors and and traditional recipes as well and then off the back of that I think if you're a naturally curious person you start then Un- unpicking that. Okay. What do I like about this dish? Well, how do I make that meat better? Well, how can I source my own meat? Well, and, and so on and so forth. And, and cold shortening is one of those, you know, it doesn't matter what you do to it once you buy it <laughs> or, or if it's already gone through that, um, it, unfortunately that bell is, is hard to unring. So I found it fascinating. Hmm. Is there a way to unring it? Cause I've always said like, if you have a, if you have a, this happens a lot with wild hogs, especially where, you know, somebody will shoot a pig and they will butcher it in rigor and they'll take the back straps off and back straps are tough as nails. And it's especially true with, with does and de- doe deer and, and hogs where they're, they're going to take that back strap off during rigor. And then they complain that the back strap is, t- is tough. And like, well, that's probably shortening. Uh, I mean, it could be because, because the doe is nine years old or the hog was years and years old too, but Chances are it's shortening. And I don't, the only thing I've ever told people to do is like, well, you can make schnitzel. 
Um, mm. Cutlets are a great option. Uh, Chinese food is a great option because it's you're you're kind of slicing things into bite-sized pieces anyway. But in terms of like a medallion, you may be out of luck. But is is there anything that I'm missing on that one? No, I mean, I, I feel like we might be using the term shortening slightly differently um, in terms of what I, what what I, this the meat science version of cold shortening is versus okay. just okay. just rigor it, it uh, rigor and age of the animal. And certainly, there's multiple different ways to tenderize. One is the manual tenderization, which will be your schnitzels and just hammering the shit out of it, right? Right. Um, and then we can go into things like our dry and wet aging which are basically we're purely talking about a tenderization factor in, in that case, but true shortening has a lot mainly to do with water holding capacity as well, which is not something that you can reintroduce. So that will be more about juiciness, which can also, so the whole thing's subjective, right? Because what if you, you might be someone who thinks, well, tender also equals or means juicy or juiciness equals tenderness. And I might be like, I don't mind if my steak mouthfeel is dry as long as there's no bite um, resistance. So even the concept of tenderness, (laughs) believe it or not, can be quite subjective, but on the whole, for older animals, it's, it's, it's definitely there, there's uh, you just have to get creative about the recipes or, or really cook the shit out of it as it were. (laughs) (laughs) Quick shout out to one of our sponsors. And that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all-wool body, has classic snap-flap pockets, and a full-width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. To dry aging. I, I don't. I actually don't want to talk about wet aging uh, today. Because yeah. it's an entirely different topic, um, and, and quite frankly, I don't, I don't really do it very much. Because, um, all right, f- to hell with it. Let's so let's let's spend a couple minutes on wet aging so we can get through it to get to dry aging. So, my concept of wet aging is that number one, it's 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 fine for like a week or two just for tenderization, but you hear of people vacuum sealing a piece of you know deer or beef or whatever for like a month uh and even in the fridge to me that just sounds like a weird bacterial soup and you know <laughs> i i just uh, if my opinion of okay if you want to uh, if you have that tough backstrap or you suspect that backstrap is tough you could vacuum seal it and put it in your fridge for a week or two and then that'll help a little maybe 
but for preservation for long time for long term flavor blah 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 it's not really going to help you that much is that wrong no that's right so here's here's the way that i tell people wet aging uh, you know wet aging and dry aging can both promote tenderness but only dry aging can promote an improvement in flavor and in fact wet aging is either neutral or if you leave it too long can actually um develop sour flavors yes which is which is not what we want in our meat most studies show that there is very little benefit to wet aging over 28 days so you could leave it in there for up to um uh, up to a month a lunar um, cycle I think, <laughs> yeah a lunar cycle there you go i personally think the sweet spot is two to three weeks um, yeah. because you're not starting to get too ma- too many if any of the sour notes develop and you are getting market increase in tenderness. And most importantly, and I think, Hank, this is a really important one to me personally, you know, it's safe. Um, it is safe compared to dry aging, which we'll talk about, which if you don't have a really good handle on it, which probably you and most of your listeners do, but in the same way as I'm sure, you know, I got an email yesterday from someone going, oh, can I substitute the pink salt with kosher salt, which, you know, demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of curing salts and why you my favorite is can I can I substitute Himalayan pink salt? Exactly. Or insecure. I'm like, you could, but you might die. I have a quick story <laughs> that I just think is like so representative of how challenging things like that are, which is in the university meat labs, the sodium nitrate has to be locked up and monitored and a record for the USDA has to be kept of its use in the meat labs. But you can go on Amazon and buy however much you want because they're like, I don't care what you do in your own homes, just but in this federal institution or in this state institution, <laughs> we're going to monitor it and make sure that you're using it safe levels. That's so that's kind of crazy to me, right? Well, let alone um, potassium nitrite. Pardon? But let alone potassium nitrite. Right. The, it's a I mean, saltpeter for for the the non uh, scientifically inclined. <laughs> but it's just. <laughs> But it's mind blowing. And I so for me, it's it's part of that. The thing is, anyone can get I remember when I first started dating my husband and he was living with a roommate and I went over and this guy had a deer backstrap. Uh, you'll love this. He had a deer backstrap in his fridge wrapped in saran wrap that he would take out and wash every two days and then kind of loosely wrap it again and put it back in his fridge. Perfect. Um <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you don't know what we're talking about out there, uh, washing meat will not rinse off bacteria. Um, USDA does not recommend that you wash meat. You're more likely to spread bacteria that way. And ultimately, you will sterilize it during the cooking process anyway. But it's really important for wet aging to work to be in a completely anaerobic environment. So not just saran wrap. It has to be sealed in vacuum seal. And then those enzymes can get to work, breaking down those actomycin bonds, effectively just breaking that flex or contraction of muscle to start softening it. And we, and you do see a huge difference in it. So I think there's a time and a place. Um, I roll my eyes a little bit, although I try and always have a mindset of, Hey, you learn new stuff all the time, but people who are like, I dry age mine for three months, or I did a brisket for a year. It's, there's no data to support that. And in my personal experience, I would argue that it has one probably developed an unpleasant texture and certainly an unpleasant sour taste too. 
So if you guys out there have not ever seen Jess's videos, she does quite a lot of them. Um, look her up and we're, we're, we'll give you her various social channels later. She does the best eye roll. <laughs> uh, They're like whole like videos where she busts myths and it's like, ooh, champion grade eye roll. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I feel the same about a lot of kind of what I would describe as hunting myths too. I'm a new hunter in that I only took it up six years ago when I moved to the States, but that whole idea even of, oh, well, I leave my backstraps in water. Yes. I know. <laughs> so here's the thing. There's oh man, I'll argument. tell you what, Jess, the yeah. thing you got to do your deer meat is you stick yeah. it in a cooler with some ice water for about 17 days. And then it, you, you can change the water if you want, but you don't have to. And <laughs> <laughs> it's real good. Oh God. Uh, the, just if, the thing of it is, there's an argument for that whole like soak it in milk thing having an effect because you're changing the pH. If you can change a pH, you're changing the profile of the meat at that point. Um, but as far as the water is concerned, it's just one of those things of again, like it, it's nearly a confirmation bias. Like, did you keep one backstrap in the water and one backstrap out of the water and taste test them compared to each other? Did you repeat that experiment multiple times to prove that it works? You know, like it, it's, it's the same as barbecue. People want to do all of these elaborate steps to their brisket to tell you that their brisket is the best just because they want to believe that something they are doing makes it great. It really is just time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an entirely different story. Like, you know, the barbecue wars is like, I, yeah, I can't, I can't even go there. And I'm, you, know, you live in <laughs> Texas, so you can't even, you, you can't escape it, but. No, we're very much in it. And, and I love it. It's a great community, but I think that people frequently overcomplicate their barbecue cooking because of that, you know, oh, and fat side up, fat side down. Do you lacquer the paper with tallow beforehand? And and it's just, it all fits into that guise of what, what can I do? That's an extra, perhaps superfluous step to make me feel better that mine is different <laughs> somehow. Sorry, so I, but it's true. I know it's <laughs> true. My... I've seen, you know, because I, I am, I am not a brisket expert, although I've done any number of them. And I recently had to do a bison brisket from a three-year-old animal. Mm -hmm. And I just did what I always do, but except it, it took a lot longer. So I smoked it for about eight hours and then I wrapped it. And then I, um, and I actually ended up finishing it in the oven wrapped and it took like another <laughs> damn near 10 hours because the <laughs> animal was so old uh, to get that jiggle that everybody knows and loves. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it happened. It just, it took way more hours than not that I expected, but kind of like I knew it wouldn't be eight or 12 hour period because it was an old bison. Mm -hmm. um, not really even an old bison, just a, you know, it would be old for beef. And, and then it just took an extra three or four hours than I, that I was like, Oh, okay. But it, it worked and it was super simple, but we digress. Yeah. So I know, that's the problem. I felt like we were, we were going to do this today, but I'm, I'm loving it. All these <laughs> diversions. So with dry aging, my my advice to people, because then again, I'm talking mostly to um, to hunters, is because of the nature of dry aging, it, it requires time and space and, and, and a fairly decent setup, which we'll get into. Uh, I only really dry age on a deer or elk or whatever, the hind legs above the shank and if it's a giant animal, a backstrap, but if it's a normal animal, 
um, and I and I'm able to do this, I will saw the I basically saw a saddle. So you saw the back strap off in front of the hips, cut the ribs, and you take it behind the shoulder. So you have essentially a saddle that will fit into whatever dry aging setup you have. And the reason why I only dry age those elements of an animal is because in my opinion, and I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this, you don't get a lot of, like the juice is not worth the squeeze for dry aging a shank or a neck or a shoulder that you're going to cook the hell out of anyway. And, you know, a dry aging thing, the real beauty of it is, is that is that you're going to eat it medium rare or rare or medium. And then you get more enjoyment out of that than you would say six week dry aged burger. Am I wrong? No, I agree with you entirely. I, I, if I haven't posted already, it's sitting in my drafts and it's why you should not dry age brisket. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The there dry aging and the concept of aging is for steaks and meats that you intend to eat at a medium to medium rare temperature. It is not, it, the cooking itself is another tenderizing method. So it is, again, as you point out, superfluous to spend all that time dry aging product that you will then break down with the cooking anyway. Um, I guess one thing that we haven't just to go a little bit high level, the, the point of dry aging is that water weight gets lost during cooking, during drying, um, which is also supposed to concentrate the flavor at the same time that the, um, that those proteins, uh, sorry, those, um, fibers are being broken down. Those bonds are being broken down. So it's tenderizing. It's also concentrating in flavor as the water loses is lost, but there's also the X factor, which is also the molds, which is, we will talk about that for sure as well. But the idea is that with some dry aging, there is the introduction of, of molds similar to charcuterie or sausage making that can contribute flavors like blue cheese in a uh, blue mold in cheese. Mm-hmm. So that's what, what I guess when we talk about, you know, the, the flavor, is it worth it? You know, someone might argue, oh, but it's got such a richer flavor when I dry age it before I absolutely you know cook the crap out of it um maybe again subjective very hard to to measure and even then taste itself is subjective and i agree with you at that point if if you're going to cook it too tender um there certainly is no point aging uh there's also the question of loss you know Mm -hmm. just you Mm -hmm. know dry aging requires loss both within water weight which you just mentioned and and you've got to trim the rind you do. I have a, we've never done it, but I spoke to one of the professors at A&M about, we were sort of just musing, if you could have any kind of setup to dry age deer, how would you do it? And one of the things that they do when they harvest beef at the very end of the line. So once, you know, they keep the line separate, once the hide comes off, it moves to a different area because the hide and the guts are the biggest um, contaminants. That's, that's where things can, can go the most wrong and obviously contents of the guts. So please draw, draw the dots, just connect the dots there. Um, poopy. That's the one. (laughs) So at the end of the line, once the beef is processed into a side, it goes through either a hot water spray or a lactic acid spray. And that's a final step to retard any bacterial growth that may have ended up on that raw meat of the carcass by that point. And so it's the same as that backcountry spray you can get in those cans. That's actually a lactic acid spray. 
And we were musing, okay, so if you could gut the deer and remove the entire digestive system and get rid of that contaminant, you then left with the hide, but what if you could spray the hide and that gut cavity with lactic acid and then hang it in the cooler like that for a week? And then when you go to, so everything's starting to, to break down and, and it's going through the aging process. But then when you go to process it, yes, that hide's going to be tougher to take off than when it was not refrigerated, but you're not going to get any of that papery uh, rind and loss on the outside. So I haven't done that, but that's a theory that I'm very interested in. Well, it's a, it's a practice in any, pretty much anywhere it's cold. So in the U S and Canada where it's cold, the standard practice is to shoot a deer, gut a deer, hang the deer in the, in the garage, hide on when mm. your temperatures are, you know, your nights go below freezing, your days go like 35. Um, that's, that's normal. Like half the people listening to this are like, well, shit, that is a, we've been doing that for our deer for generations. Yes, but did they spray the hide for? Like, I guess that's the difference. No, like we they were... didn't. Be, they didn't. But right. they, but nobody, no babies died, so I mean, it's perfectly fine to not spray it. Right. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's I don't know. It's one of those things where I think that a lot of our food safety practices and guidelines are definitely designed for lowest common denominator, like end of the world scenarios. <laughs> Um, case in point meeting Parisa the other day, which is that raw meat similar to, to, I guess they think they'd call it tiger meat up North. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it's like a, it's like a ground meat tartare, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But it's got, yeah. you know, of course it's been textified. So it's got jalapenos and onions and right, right, <laughs> American right. And cheese. And, 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 um, that's from very peculiar hill country thing that doesn't exist in all of Texas. Right. I mean, it, it definitely has expanded, but it is from Medina County, which is just outside of San Antonio. And yeah, those you, are all Alsatian family. You can pretty much thank uh, Jesse Griffiths for popularizing that. Yeah, he's he's done incredible stuff for a lot of the regional uh, he cuisines here. But um, good for you for knowing that it's called Tiger Meat. That's a very Wisconsin thing. And I went to yeah, school in Wisconsin. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, a lot of people tag that in it when I, whenever I post about it, because that's actually my pre-hunting ritual is I go to, I, I hunt in Castroville every year and go and get a big, big chunk of Parisa. But, um, I, you know, I, I guess my point was that I know a lot of the stuff that I know you can eat raw meat under the right context and not get sick. If you know the handling practices, know where it came from, it's fresh, you know, that the chance of it developing bacteria were lower because of X factor and Y factor. And, and it's always an assumed risk. Same as when we look at a menu and see, you know, eating undercooked raw shellfish right. is a hazard. Um, but also kind of in the same vein as caution co contents of this coffee cup might be hot. Um, <laughs> so it's one of those things where I definitely think that there are some hunters out there who have been very lucky to have strengthened their gut biomes over the years. Um, it could be, but I'm going to, I'm going to take the other tack on this one because mm -hmm. when I wrote Buck Buck Moose in 2015, um, I read 25 years of CDC data on foodborne illness and, mm -hmm. and the cases of foodborne illness that involve venison are vanishingly rare. 
vanishingly rare. There are millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds of venison eaten by U.S. Americans and Canadians and, and other people every year. And there's like less than six cases of foodborne illness that, that can be traced to venison every year. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't looked at the data recently, but I do know that you know, I also did a HACCP program as part of this too. And sure. I mean, most that's of it comes it... from most of the foodborne illnesses are usually from dairy, especially queso fresco, I think is the major, the biggest <laughs> issue. That's got to be a listeria thing, isn't it? Pardon me? Yes, exactly. Be... Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's a listeria thing, especially because traditionally it's done with raw milk. So a lot of immigrant families come and try and produce it to that standard or the temperature is not right. It's a whole thing. I'm sure oh, it's yeah. a whole thing oh, that yeah. you can read about. D- dairy is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but the bigger issue is that a lot of people don't know when they get that one, they don't know that they're sick from food poisoning. If it's like a light bout of it Two, they assume People, a lot of people like I know growing up, it was like, oh, well, what did I eat 24 hours ago? Because that's, you know, what we're taught is you had to have eaten it 24 hours ago to get sick. And the window is is usually more around 72 hours that it's a possibility. So a lot of cases aren't reported and a lot of people miscategorize what they ate or, mis, you know, un- assume there's the wrong thing that got them sick as well. But I definitely would say on the whole a lot of hunters probably have a better knowledge about food prep and food safety. But having said that, Hank, honestly, I've seen a lot of things the other way. Like when I first moved here, I I had to rely on other people to teach me how to process deer. And I saw lots of different ways. And I saw one guy who took the hide off first and then he started cutting out the butthole and Mm -hmm. oops, a couple of deer pellets hit the hit the hams and he's like ah it's fine it's grass well you know not so much every i guarantee you every single person listening to this has had that happen has eaten the ham and has been perfectly fine like i had like i just processed 30 deer in oklahoma last week and that happened once or twice it's fine like it really is. It's fine. It's just, it's, I mean, it's, unless you're going to eat that particular piece of deer raw, which nobody is, um, it's, they're not hogs. You know, the gut biome of hogs is way more, uh, entertaining, shall we say, uh, than, than ruminants. Like it just, it's just not, I just don't see people getting sick from it. Like it's, you don't hear about it and I would hear about it. Yeah, I, I'd imagine you would. I, I think for me, it's just knowing that that's one of the, you know, that's that major area of contamination. I, I try. I mean, you're right. Best. There's a, there's an ick factor, but there, there's an ick factor. But there's also like that's why processing plants are set up in the way that they are because we know that that's that can get you sick. So you're probably yes. right. Like, there's a good chance that you won't get sick, but there's also a chance that you will. So I would rather true do it a different way and minim- minimalize my chances. Um, but it's, it's also that kind of, there's, there's an aspect to it. That's just sort of like, you know, don't be afraid of the world you live in. Not everything is going to make us sick. And then there's a, I, I walked around like a maniac during dove season because I would kill a dove and then run it into the ice bucket that I had with me. And we're talking like 80, 90 degrees in Texas. Oh, that's a cool day during dove season. (laughs) And at the end of it, 
I had my doves on ice. They went, they went to Riga really quickly and everyone else was obviously walking around with theirs for, for, for at least an hour in that heat. And then we went to clean them and I said to my friend, smell yours. He's like, yep, smells like dove. And I'm like, okay, smell this. And he's like, well, it doesn't smell like anything. Like exactly. (laughs) Um, I have slowed the rate of decomposition. I've slowed those flavors. That's also, it's a flavor thing as well, right? Hey, everybody. If you are interested in buying my cookbooks, I have three of them on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is at huntgathercook.com. You will get a 15% discount off the purchase of not only those cookbooks, but also any kind of other gear, swag, or apparel that we sell on the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook shop. You use the code Hunt Gather Talk. That's Hunt Gather Talk in all one word. And you will get 15% off your order of any of my cookbooks or of hoodies or shirts or stickers and that sort of thing on the huntgathercook.com shop. You will see my cookbooks and you will see apparel and stickers and all that sort of thing. Use the code Hunt Gather Talk and you will get 15% off. Thanks in advance for your support. That's a good segue into birds because um, I rarely put my my doves on ice either, but I keep them um, in the open air in the shade as a kind of a half measure because at some point, like I don't want to, sometimes my hunting spots for doves are two miles from the truck and I'm not going to schlep, you know, 10 pounds of ice in a, in a thing. <laughs> so I'm just not, you know, but yes, you're right. Doves in the sun and, and dove season is, is no, it, <laughs> you can get a little bit of a flavor. It's probably also the reason why most people breast out their doves, but, right. but hanging birds is an entirely different animal and so to speak. And I'm just, I'm, I've been fascinated by it and I have not, I need to find, you know, an Englishman or somebody from Europe who, where this is done commercially because all of the good scientific papers on hanging birds are from, um, oddly enough, there's some from Australia, but many are, are from the United Kingdom and some in, in, in the continent as well. So the, and I don't know how to explain this and you might be able to help given the fact that you know a bit more about meat science, but it is traditional practice to hang a bird uh, of pheasant size or smaller, hole it in the feathers. And there are arguments about the neck versus the, the foot. And, and the papers I've read said there's no qualitative difference between hanging a bird from the neck or hanging a bird from the foot. For the sweet spot seems to be five days at about 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, if you had if you if you had a gutted deer at five days from 55 degrees Fahrenheit, that's a danger thing. But it's apparently not with birds. The the reason why you 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 only really gut birds that are larger than a pheasant because you, they have enough thermal inertia where they're not going to cool down by themselves fast enough. Like mm-hmm. geese have to be gutted, turkeys have to be gutted. Big, big, big ducks, like domestic ducks, they should be cutted. Um, and then in my ex- my personal experience with hanging birds, fat waterfowl, which we get a lot of in California. So fat waterfowl, the, the fat is so unsaturated in a wild duck that it will start to turn at that 50, 55 degree temperature after a couple of days. Mm. So I only really hang skinny ducks for more than a day or two mm. and, and fat ducks, they get processed much quicker because the fat is more valuable to me than the the heightened flavor of a hung bird, but pheasants, 
partridges, even quail. I mean, I'll let them sit in a cooler over ice. I don't get them wet, but I sit them over ice so they're cool for three or four days because it makes them much easier to pluck. The flavor's better and they've they've fully gone through rigor. And But this can all be done 20 degrees higher than you can with red meat. And I'm not entirely sure why. I, I'll be the first to tell you that I don't have any experience with that. Cause I think it's really important to acknowledge when you, when you do know what you're talking about and when you, when you're out of your lane, For sure. but I can definitely think of a few potential variables or reasons that might come into play. Um, certainly not with, with, with the temperature. Um, it may be, and again, these are all theories. It may be that the oxidative rancidity flavor is less unpleasant on those animals. And so it can be stood to be at that higher temperature. It may be because do you cook your pheasant? Do you leave it pink in the middle? Not, not upland birds, waterfowl I do. And are you leaving that waterfowl at that high attempts? Yeah, typically. But I do like it. I do like, I will, because of the, any fat on a waterfowl will go off uh, quicker. Like if I keep a pheasant at 55, I might keep mm. a, a duck under 50, like in the forties somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, and that's exactly what I'm talking about when I, when I use the phrase oxidative rancidity, and that's more about flavor than anything else. So not taking into account toxins, which are different from bacterias, which obviously like if, if the meat has toxins in it, those toxins cannot be killed by heat. And that's what can make you sick, but that's very rare to see, especially in red meat, um, or beef, I should say to be, to be specific. But when, when we talk about meat spoiling and going bad, it's actually more than anything, a flavor thing. Cause theoretically you could let like, let's say that fatty duck, you could do it at 50 degrees and then cook it to medium rare. And it'll probably not taste very good because you've started to develop some off flavor compounds associated with oxidative rancidity because that fat and especially the, the tighter of the fat. So the makeup, as you mentioned, you know, whether it's unsaturated or, or what that actual makeup of the fat is can affect that as well and can affect the flavors. But because you've put that heat on it, it should be technically safe to eat to the point where you're not going to get sick. It just won't taste very good. Mm. So that's the other like really delicate balance of all of this, you know, it, and it's, and it's less in our community. And, and I think I see this more because I used to be one of those people in the general consumer category where the, you know, bad meat is just bad meat and they can't differentiate between, well, does it just taste bad or is it bad for you? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's I deal with this with gamey all the time. So mm -hmm. I don't want to really get into that because it's a big tangent. But um, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, let's go back to to red meat because okay, so the sweet spot for birds is you know by all the all the the surveys and studies is about 50, 55 degrees, and I lean closer to fifty for five days. So for red meat, I hear, and you, you're gonna you know more about this than I do. That the sweet spot is three weeks to a month at, you know, 34, 35 degrees. So here's the funny thing about that I've learned over the years about sweet spots and temps and humidities. And even when you go to a steakhouse and you see it say 21 days dry aged, 
it's all relative because 21 days in my home aging unit is going to taste different to 21 days in my local Lone Star Meats who has a full walk-in cooler just of dry aging loins. And so they develop flavor much more rapidly than, than I do. So it depends on the setup. It depends on how much green product you have in there with it, which is going to affect obviously the humidity, but also that rate of aging. There's so many variables. And that's one of the bigger problems that literature review that I mentioned, we tried to find studies on this. There have been lots of studies on pork, especially prosciutto and Spanish and Italian hams, because it's such a beloved legacy meat that's a cultural icon that there have been studies done on the flavor and the flavor compounds that develop and the caves and the significance of the areas that you're aging in. We don't have any of that for beef. Part of the reason, just to be frank, um, is that most studies are going to be need to be funded. And it, it's only going to be funded if it's going to relate to high consumer satisfaction or usefulness. And dry aging is so niche that it's going to be, I don't know where we'll find funding to do those really detailed studies, including of, of the good bacteria. You know, I talked about, oh, the good molds and what mm -hmm. those actually look like. So there really isn't anything out there as a guide. There's just sort of, in the same thing that honestly we find on a lot of hunting forums, there's just a lot of, a lot of people with experience sharing their own um, experiences, but one is not necessarily going to be replicatable to another because then you've also got the variable, which is where it starts becoming this big, fascinating, you know, whiteboard full of equations and marks. And, you know, like when you walk in and the guy's driving himself crazy, trying to solve the impossible science puzzle. Right. Um, I, to me, then you've got things like age of the deer, size of the deer, breed of the deer. How long did it take to cool it down? How, like all of this contributes, how did it run? Did it use up all of its glycogen because it didn't drop straight away? How's that going to affect meat quality? How's that going to affect aging? Like we, the, especially in the wild game world, we can't even begin to get a definitive scientific, and I know you've read a lot of papers, so you appreciate that to, to have a definitive um, result, you need to be able to recreate the experiment satisfactorily X amount of times to make it viable. And it's nearly impossible Ooh. to do that with wild game because but, your variable is so great. But I come from a family of artists, not scientists. And, mm -hmm. and so, and yes, I'm very well aware that the plural of anecdote does not equal data. Um, however, it's kind of being, I, I kind of accept that it's unknowable from a scientific perspective. And I kind of embrace the chaos of <laughs> everything that you just mentioned. I mean, truly, like, if there's anything there, you cannot say anything more true about cooking wild game, then you must embrace the chaos and, and work within that, that fuzzy parameter. That is all of those days, all of those things, everything you just mentioned, plus what was eating? Where are you? Blah, blah, blah. Yes. So there's a hundred of, there's a hundred other variables and you just have to kind of accept it and be, be chill with it. So mm -hmm. when I talk about things like sweet spots, you're a hundred percent right that yes, you know, in some cases, you know, three weeks is great. Some cases, five weeks is great. But I think 
we can probably both agree that it's got to be at least 21 days to get a flavor change, right? Yeah. And so you want to be somewhere, I would say, like I can tell you in my fridge at home to go anecdotal again, I'm somewhere between, uh, you know, 21 and 60 days because mm. past that, you're starting to get too much loss, which I don't have to worry about from a commercial perspective. Neither do you. Um, we're not trying to sell it at the end of it, but there's also a consideration. It also gets to a point where it's quite hazardous to cut at that point, especially with beef. It The rind and pellicle is so tough that you would yes. actually need a bandsaw um, to help with it, to help cut that off. So I'm somewhere between, you, you definitely need to give it a good month to, to do that, I think. And also please don't buy those bags. I don't believe. Oh God. Yeah. Bags. All right. So I have my own Umai bag rant and rave and I'm, there's probably other companies besides that, but, but I'd love to hear yours. I don't, I did not buy the Umai, Umai bag, but I did um, do some very interesting research contacting the team at Kansas state who did the scientific studies that Umai hang their hat on. And let me say this, their biggest claim is that it's a one-way film so that air can escape, but off flavors do not get in. Because if it, it, you know, to scale it right back and just repeat ourselves, if you are listening to us, you do not dry age by throwing it in the back of a fridge that is your beer fridge, that is your medicine fridge, that is your something else fridge. At least I don't. I'm a firm believer that your dry aging unit needs to be a standalone unit. It can be a fridge. It can be a beer fridge that you cleaned out and hacked, but it needs to not have anything else in it. Um, particularly if you're trying to nurse a particular uh, microflora in there. I'm kind of okay with it being a beer fridge because everything in a beer fridge is enclosed. I am not okay with the, with a fridge with other things that can contribute aromas and flavors. True, but the argument with beer fridges, it's open more frequently to right? get beer out of it. And, and which every- I, would ar- I would argue is that that's entirely beneficial because typically in a beer, in a beer fridge, if in this setup, and I've done this for a decade, because you open it up once or twice a day, that gives you your airflow. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, again, we're not talking about, I think both of us actually have dry agers, if I'm not. Yes. Yeah. I've got a so those are like, that That was like my, instead of buying a Miata uh, for my midlife crisis, I bought a dry ager. And nice. they're they're expensive and they're fantastic and they're wonderful. But, but for 98% of the people listening to this, you can't afford it. So we're going to go into like, what's a good setup. But I did start by building my own and I you decided did. Okay. that it, yes, and it wasn't, and it was okay, but it, uh, what, what the takeaway for me out of it was that it's crucial to have humidity control. It's not, yes. it's, it's yes. not acceptable to just be like, now I'm putting a computer fan in now I'm adding a salt block, like the up and down. I equate it. If anyone out there again is a barbecue, it's like saying, okay, you have to hold your smoker at 250, but if you're spiking to 300 and then down to 200 and that's not going to be, it, it doesn't even out in the wash, you know, it doesn't be like, well, it's equivalent to 250. Those temp spikes and drops are going to screw you at the end of the cook. But, um, so yeah, I do have a dedicated, do have a dedicated setup for it. So here's the deal with the bags. I did an experiment where I bought this bag. And I bought a huge loin of beef. And so I was using the same product. And again, not scientific because I just did it at home, but I tried to get rid of as many variables as I could. Cut that loin into three pieces, put two pieces in the dry aging bag and one piece in in the dry aging fridge, like normal naked. I put one of the sealed bags in the dry aging fridge. And I put the third bag in my regular domestic fridge. 
which is what most people would use it with. And again, right. remember their claim is that it only goes one way. And what I found at the end of it was if nothing else, the one that was in the bag in the dry aging fridge should not have any taste at all of those funky, truffly, moldy notes because it was not exposed to that fridge, to, to, to the contents of that fridge going into the bag, mm-hmm. except that it did. Huh. And that means by dun, the same dun, token dun. that... <laughs> You know, the same reason that you put bicarbonate soda in your fridge to pick up all the smells in there, the one that was in my regular fridge definitely had some off flavors from just picking up the smells of the fridge. Mm, And when I contacted K-State and said, hey, when you ran your experiment to do all this and to talk about the flavors and doing your sensory panels, did you hold these in a domestic fridge or a cafeteria or a staff fridge, or did you hold them in a dedicated meat fridge in the meat facility? And they held them in a dedicated meat fridge in the meat facility, (laughs) which is not an oversight. It's another variable that keeps it stronger, but it doesn't speak to real life. Real life. And and I did also contact another film expert at Iowa State who said that they have never heard of a film that makes the claims that those bags make that they can filter some smells but not others that it's either impermeable in one direction or not it's you can't have it both ways where it selectively chooses compounds to filter you're either random or you're curated you can't be both correct if you're listening to this podcast you're probably someone who cares about where their food comes from and is excited to explore wild and unique foods foraged market helps you do just that Forage Market is an online marketplace full of unique ingredients and food products that ship directly from foragers and farmers right to your door. Whether you're looking for interesting ingredients or looking to grow your own food business, you need to check out Forage Market. Because of their ever-growing list of vendors, they have an awesome selection of ingredients and products. From pickled milkweed pods to ramp kimchi to dried wild mushrooms to craft pantry items and much more. Forage Market is sure to have something interesting for you. In addition to incredible food, Forage helps people connect. Forage.com has awesome features like direct messaging, so you can chat with the small business owners on Forage to explore new things and learn more about what's on your dinner plate. Head over to www.foraged.com and help put power back in the hands of independent food producers. So let's just get into the, the setup now. I'm going to talk about my setup and you're going to cringe. Um, I mean, obviously, we both have fancy dry agers now. And I actually am looking, as we speak, at two giant buck hams that are sitting in the dry ager that will sit there for a month. But before I was elevated to this exalted status, um, <laughs> I what I did and what I came up with, and this is what I write about in Buck Buck Moose back in 2015, is that this this works. Jess is about going to tell you after I'm done of a better way than what I did. But the bare bones way that I found that works is actually do use the beer fridge for the reasons we just talked about, which is you go into it and that creates airflow because no airflow is really bad for dry aging meat. Two, it is attached to a, a regulator, right? So, so regulator goes into the wall, uh, fridge goes into the regulator and you can control temperature by that. It's You can buy these for like, 50 bucks in a, on online. And I set it at like 35 degrees, um, which is not creates nice ice cold beer. And it's colder than your normal fridge, at least that normal fridge, that normal fridge is kind of janky. And so it gets you to a safe temperature. So the beer sits on the bottom. 
Then the, I put the rack over the beer cans. And then over the rack and the beer cans is a baking sheet with uh, with another thing in it. So a smaller, like a big, big giant baking sheet that covers the whole thing. Then inside that is a smaller like roasting pan thing. And that had uh, rock salt and water in it. So that kept the th- kept the the fridge humid and then the rack above it would be whatever i was dry aging and and so that creates humidity it's a good temperature and then the act of grabbing a beer creates some airflow and it works you know i mean did i did i dry age for more than a month no but it worked good enough and so i think that in my opinion that would be the floor of what you would do now you built a dedicated thing. And, and so how is yours better? So I bought a beverage fridge with a clear door, which if you don't do that, you'll save yourself a ton of money. Um, but I wanted to see it because fascinating. Um, so you can buy a secondhand regular cheap ass fridge. But um, I did, yeah. Just just sterilize it beforehand or clean oh, it. Good point. Yes. Yeah. Bleach the bleach it out first and then air it out so you don't smell like bleach. hundred percent. Um, I also started by putting a plug-in fan in the bottom of it to create extra airflow. Quickly discovered that was probably about a six-inch fan, maybe seven. Discovered that was way too intense. Um, went down to a tiny little um, b- a bitty baby fan. Eventually ended up turning that off because... One, I was aging for more than 21 days because I wanted extreme aged flavors on there and I wanted to cultivate mold. I also bought, uh, people get pissed off at me because you're not going to be able to do this, but I'm just going to tell you. I also, I didn't buy them. I procured like uh, dry age trimmings from people I know who have um, formal dry age plates. So like certified Angus beef sent me some Lone Star meats gave me some, they're not going to do that for the everyday public, which is the part where I'm like, you're not going to like that. But that's how I started mine. I basically inoculated it. Cause I wanted those flavors in there. Let me stop um, you for one second. What mm-hmm. if you were to go on butcherandpacker.com and buy the Bacto firm 600? Did so that too. Okay. So Let this me is tell the, you so for experience. you guys listening out there, that's, that's the charcuterie mold. That's that nice tight white mold. So. So that's slightly different to that's slightly different to the so he okay you're about to you're about to open a massive Pandora's box but I'm just gonna try and get it all out there right <laughs> sorry no no you're good so first of all with the with my with I've tried that that introduced bacteria as well the biggest problem for me is because I wasn't introducing things regularly enough because beef is really expensive especially on that size and I didn't have a lot of wild game to add to it everything was drying out so the fans were too extreme seams were opening in the meat because it was drying too quickly because the humidity was too low and when those seams opened up the bacteria would get in and that means cutting away the pellicle would not be enough Because I was now getting mold and bacteria inside the meat itself, meaning I could no longer safely cook it to medium rare. Well, you got got to cut it, cut like divots out of it to get it out. Yeah. And it's going to look all weird and redheaded stepchild and no one wants that. (laughs) And so I found that first I wasn't getting the flavors from that charcuterie mold. It's not the same as that kind of classic dry age flavor. And then 
here's where the box gets thrown wide open. The biggest problem is this. There is no way unless you send it off for laboratory testing to check which are the desirable molds and which are the undesirable molds. So it used to be when I first wrote about it that I was like, hey, you're good as long as it's not black. But there are green molds that are good and there are green molds that are bad. Um, and so this is why it's sort of like, oh, okay, maybe if you keep a more sterile unit, like if you put a UV light in there, you're not getting any of that mold growth or it's going to retard the mold growth. You're not going to get that flavor profile to it, but you're still going to get the concentration in flavor from the water loss and the tenderness from the aging itself. So mold now, even though that's what I like most about dry aging in terms of flavor is also now the big kind of scary. Cause those are also the toxins that I mentioned where you can cook it to 160 and you can still get sick. So that's like a really interesting kind of curveball that all of this experimentation has thrown at me. But I think the big takeaway is this. If you're going for 21 days or less, you should be all right because you're not going to be as affected by the the nuances of airflow and humidity levels and stuff. But I do know when I finally got my dry my uh, dry ager, which I've got a steak locker brand, um, I it, it's it's a set and forget. It is the pellet grill of dry agers <laughs> there. I mean, you know, I have to admit they, there are two giant, giant mega bougie things that I own in my life. Uh, one is this dry ager, which I love. It's set it and forget it. And, and then the other is a thing that you can throw your compost scraps into like your kitchen scraps in a com and it like grind dries it, grinds it and makes it into compost. Like in a couple hours, That's like impressive. it's, it's like, they're, they're not necessary, but they're really, really nice to have. And if you guys out there are really into this, you know, there are a couple of brands to get. Um, you said you have a steak locker. Yes. Yeah. And I've got a dry ager, like the German one. Mm -hmm. um, they're not cheap. They're like, uh, you know, the price of a used car. Um, I mean, I guess mine was a couple grand, two and a half grand. Um, but they go much higher than that. And so, yeah, it's not a, it's a, it's not a small investment, but they are nice. <laughs> they are and if you're doing i think that if you are somebody who hunts all year round um it, it's hard to justify if you unless you can add meat to it frequently basically but if you do then i think it's like buying you know like a good thermometer a hundred dollar thermometer instead of a ten dollar thermometer it's relevant to what you're doing and it ultimately increases your your satisfaction in, in your, in your meal. Yeah. I mean, for me, the reason why I bought one was dry aging when it's that time of year, charcuterie when it's that time of year and dry aging fish when it's that time of year. So it, the, the units are good for all three of these things. And, and, and so like in the summertime, there's fish hanging in it and the, in the dead of winter, it's all charcuterie. And then right, right now it's all dry aging. So. Mm hmm. And and it so it can be multi duty, right? Yeah, you can set all the different different parameters. So like charcuterie, you, you want the temperature to be up around 50, 55 even, and you want the humidity to be fairly quasi low, like seventy five percent. Whereas dry aging, and then we we haven't actually set a number yet, but I think you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Dry aging is really best at much higher humidities, higher than seventy five percent. 
Yeah, I set mine to between 75 and 80. That's mm. that in the in the limited research, again, what I've personally done at home and what I was able to ascertain on the studies that have been done, that's kind of the sweet spot. So um at least at least for for my experience. And back to a you know a home setup, like both of what both of us are talking about. There's a, a slightly more expensive deal that you can buy. It's like about $120 and you can get them on Amazon or, or wherever. I, I get them from a, my local brew shop. It's a it's like a double regulator. It's so regulator goes into the wall, fridge goes into the regulator and there's your temperature. But there's another plug and another readout for a humidifier. So you can set a humidifier in your spare fridge. And again, this won't this might make your beer beer bottle labels a little wet, but uh, but if you use cans, it's no big deal. Um, and you have a little humidifier in there and then that plugs into the regulator as well. And you can set both the temperature and the humidity that way. And that is infinitely cheaper than these fancy boxes that we have. So if you're kind of getting your feet wet, I highly recommend that because that is better than the pan of salt water. Or, but you know, black Friday, uh, uh, wine fridge sale because wine fridges often have humidity control. That's true. So they don't ruin the corks. Mm Mm-hmm. You'd have to check, obviously, that they go to the temperatures we've been talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got my wine fridge. I, I, why is my meat all rotten? It's 55 degrees in there. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's I want to talk about the rind for a second. So the the nature of dry aging does a couple of things as we've been talking about it. it. It You get a lot of water loss over the course of the weeks and you get this pellicle, this rind forms. And sometimes the rind is super nasty and gnarly, like what Jess is talking about with like an ecosystem on top of it. Uh, and I, I've, as far as I know, you don't do really anything with that. Uh, however, you can dry age things sometimes for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks even, and there isn't any mold on it. And it's just like kind of a jerky rind on the outside. I have heard, and I, I have to admit, I haven't really done anything with that yet, but I've heard that people do anything from put it into the grind pile for burger to feed it to their pets to, um, to put it into the stock pot. So I, uh, what have you heard about what you can do with that pellicle? So the caveat, I'm sorry, I just have to, but the caveat is that again, if it has the mold that has the toxins on it, and sometimes we can't always see that as very visible mold, you shouldn't be doing anything with it. So the safest thing when in doubt, which we know that, you know, you're much braver than that, but the safest thing is to trim and discard. Yeah. I have used it very successfully for in the stock pot. Um, because it's a great way is, is I nearly treat it like a bone in that I want to get the flavor from it, knowing that I won't ultimately be able to consume the thing, but I am going to use the thing. Gotcha. Um, so that's, that's how I like to use it. I've heard of people who have tried to rehydrate it, reconstitute it before. I don't, I'm very skeptical as to that working, especially on a very dried version. It's the same as freezer burn, which is both. Mm you know, it, it, it's oxidized dehydrated meat that you cannot unring the bell on. It's just not going to soak back up that water and plump up like a shiitake mushroom. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm very skeptical of that. If, if you've had success with that, then high five, I haven't. Yeah. but, um, or, or anyone, but the only thing that I wouldn't suggest is just throwing it into a grind pile because much the same as you know, the quality of sausage depends on what you put in there. Meaning if you don't trim away a lot of silver skin or, you know, even that patty whack is what we call it in, in beef. So big, big tendons as well. And you just 
throw them through the grinder, that's when you're going to be picking out all that gnarly stuff out of your sausage going, yep, that wasn't the finest bite that I've had. Well, unless you grind it multiple times. Unless you grind it multiple times, which I don't because really? nobody... I, don't, I don't have time for that. I just uh, trim them really, really carefully. That's very Texan. Well, yes, of course you do have time because you spent your time trimming and not grinding. It, it, yeah. Well, one way or the other, I guess. See, I never, I, there is no sausage that I'll make that is not ground twice. And we also, I don't think you would get rid of it with a, with a twice grind. I think you would still experience like, maybe not to the same degree, but you'd still sort of feel it as a little sort of nubule of, of cartilage rather than, or, or, you know, or connective tissue, but. Not if you go, you, you step it down. So, so a typical, like if I'm using gnarly bits, cause I do like using meh kind of meat for my sausage. Cause that's kind of the point of it. Um, is in a, a 10 millimeter grind starts the process six and a half, uh, and then, and then four and a half by stepping it down like that, it eliminates all perception of, of sinew or connective tissue or whatever. Now that said, you have to clean the, uh, the blade in between each grind, uh, because the, the, what happens is the, the connective tissue collects around the blade and in the holes of the, of the, mm-hmm. uh, die. So if I you do that. that, it works perfect. I mean, this is, it's a, now, if you really want to get German about it, um, you then, you skip the four and a half, you go right to a three, and that's effectively like making an emulsified sausage without emulsifying it. But that's that requires some, some very cold meat and fat to to pull that off. You would have loved the World Butchers Challenge. The German team brought in a bowl chopper to make Leberkäse and all kinds of fun stuff that won them the title. But um you, you don't mess with Germans and sausage, man. They may no, be the best at the world. Well, uh, that's what, how the Texan heritage of it. But I was going to say the other thing, in, at least in Texas, is there's a history of coarse ground sausages, which does not work yeah. well for the things we've been discussing. You're right. You're right. But again, we digress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's that. So I wouldn't recommend adding it to, to even if you're going to double grind, like the, it, it's, it's always going to have that firm texture because it doesn't gotcha. rehydrate. So I would use it to, I would use it for stocks. Um, okay. That's, that's my, good because my it's primary use. It's bothered me a lot because when by trimming that, it's perfect. It looks perfectly fine because I mean, using these devices, uh, you typically get s- s- almost no mold. And so, I'm like, God, it's just like, can I do something with it? So, I like the idea that you that you too will put it in the stock pot. So that's that's comforting. Yeah, absolutely. How about so the thing about dry aging that has really blown me away. So what we're talking about for much of this hour is kind of normal dry aging, which is to say for, you know, texture, for tenderness, for a bit of flavor. However, there are people like Magnus Nielsen in Sweden and some others who will go the extra step of A, using very old animals, which is what those of us who hunt are using. So a very old animal really is anything over two years old in the kind of a meat sense and um, because virtually no supermarket beef is older than two years old. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. A, a lot yeah. of it had to do with BSC as well at 36. Ah, okay. And older. Good point. So, you know, I mean, I just, the buck I just shot was eight years old. Uh, it had almost no teeth. So, it's going to have some chew to it. A, a little, a little, a double grind. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you're going to want to uh, dry age it for tenderness for sure. However, Magnus in Sweden at Favakin. Uh, he will use old, like 
retired dairy dairy heifers. And what he'll do is he will take a kind of a, a, a rack, you know, bone on ribeyes and such. And, you know, it's going to have that pretty yellow fat cap because all they're doing is eating grass. And then what he'll do is he'll render some of that fat and cap the ends of the meat so that the ends of the meat are not open to the air. Um, so that the entire block is covered in fat or bone. And then he will dry age that for like 120 days and sometimes longer. By all, I haven't eaten at Favikin, but by all accounts, it's some of the greatest meat anybody's ever had. And it's it's very blue cheesy and and there's just lots of, it's so interesting that um, it's become almost an entirely different thing. I so will I, say this, because I've eaten my fair share of dairy cattle in in Sweden and Ireland and all over. First of all, if you're encapsulating in anything, it is, in my opinion, not dry aging. Hmm, okay. It is a form of wet aging. It is not completely anaerobic because it's not vacuum sealed because that tallow can be porous or whatever he's sealing the ends with. But if you are not having a rapid loss of water, which you're not, if you're encapsulating in butter or tallow, um, you're not dry aging. You are aging. You're just not dry aging. Interesting. So uh, walk me through. So tell me, okay, so what's, because you are losing water slowly and you are like, thing, it, it, my impression is it just slows everything down dramatically. But it's like this, Hank. Uh-huh. Is it Metallica or is it Metallica before Black Album and after Black Album? I'm not sure I can answer that question. <laughs> Was that too obscure? I mean, I'm not a huge heavy metal fan, but... Uh, but it's basically like this. They're the same band, but they've put out their, their albums in their early career and nothing like their albums in their late career, except we still all call it Metallica, but you have to kind of qualify it. So okay. I would say that the term is aging. And then we qualify with different things like tallow aged, wet aged, whiskey aged, dry aged. Okay. And that, and so for me, dry aged would, re would represent a certain rate and ferocity of water loss. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I wonder about this one. So reel me this Batman. I wonder if there's a point at which a traditionally dry aged piece of meat hits that same flavor note as, as Magnus's tallow aged piece of meat. So another, so what I'm driving at is like maybe at 65 days of regular dry aging, you get his, the same thing that he's doing in 120 because he's slowing it down. Possibly, just... but then you've got the variables of the animal. And the other thing to mention about that whole dairy cattle thing and even the Rubia Gallega that's very famous in Spain is we used to dismiss any old animals, especially old cattle as cracker cows, you know, good for the grinder and nothing more. Um, and what they discovered instead of just dismissing all of it was that if you look at them, Holsteins and dairy cattle actually marble really, really well, which is a great desirable trait, especially in beef. Jerseys too. Um, right. Dairy cattle, but the eye is very small. So you don't get a big fuck off American steak, pardon my language. So, <laughs> so for that reason, now, now. Sort of been... <laughs> Australians eat big steaks too. Yeah, we do. We do. But it's a, it, you know, it's, it's a big, um, it, it can't be used for traditional beef for that or, or traditional steaks for that reason. You can't commercially, it's not commercially viable. But what they realized is that a small percentage of these retired dairy cattle actually end up being an incredible delicacy. 
the eating quality is great. They haven't developed some of those tougher qualities that we traditionally associate with older cattle. And so places like Farvikin, places like those top restaurants in Europe that are, are famous for this aged dairy cattle, it's still a tiny single digit percentage of the whole dairy cattle that can grade to that quality. It doesn't mean that any old dairy cow is going to end up tremendously flavored, even if Magnus does his tallow tricks on it. I did not know that. And a I, lot how of that. Do, how, would, how might that translate into us as hunters? It's That's a great question. It's a tough question. I think. So to speak. It has a lot to do with it. I mean, it has a tremendous amount to do with genetics. It's the same, I guess, how superficially, at least down here in Texas on your big high fence ranches, they genetically select the whitetails for their antlers. Um, It's just doing it for their meat instead. But we take such little time. We, We don't generally cut the animal open to try and grade it. And obviously it's nearly impossible to try and grade deer anyway, because there's not going to be an intramuscular fat. Right. So, which is usually the biggest um, indicator. And even then, as and then you go into all those variables, that, that delightful chaos, I think you mentioned that you enjoy <laughs> so much that makes it difficult to narrow it down for meat purposes. But we've done that with every other animal, which is really interesting, right? Like we've done that with dorper lambs. Um, I mean, you hear people say, oh, axis eats so much better than this, that eats so much better than this. Like I think whitetail tastes better than axis. Blasphemy. I, <laughs> I I just do. I was like, mm, this is not as good as everyone thinks it is. I mean, to me, they're opinion. all they're all basically they're all they're they're all my children. I uh, I get that asked that question all the time. I'm like, they're how do you even children. eat? How do your you tasty eat? tasty children? Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> children. Uh, <laughs> I just saw the the worst best meme yesterday. Uh, it was a picture of an egg, and it was like eggs, the most popular way to eat children. <laughs> that's great too, too soon uh <laughs> i think i would encourage everyone listening to this who does a setup like what we've talked about or better to to do it you know to just to do it because you know i mean i know the plural of anecdote is not data but still if you get enough people who are like yep you know i aged this big four by four muley from montana for six weeks and da, da da da, and it just—I think it almost would be a great idea to create sort of a, a clearinghouse or a forum, of well, what are people finding out? I mean, yeah. it's like almost citizen scientists share share the gold. I will say well, one thing that we didn't mention, which is probably pertinent, is especially when it comes to beef, and it's hard to recreate this with deer, but not impossible. You know, when you dry age in in a beef, you should have a huge primal or subprimal meaning oh yeah yeah you right. need to have the bones on there and if it was a ribeye you would leave that cap which we call lifter meat on top of the ribeye with that very thick cap, fat cap meaning by the time you trim away all of the lesser desirable meat and bone you are the, the steak is more intact because you haven't had to trim it away I, I don't think that you can we know especially with the timelines we've been talking about you can't take the backstrap out and throw it in your ager and expect that it won't turn to a shrivel of jerky if you try right. and leave it there for 21 days right so i that's did that part of the challenge i did that with a nil guy backstrap with a big stretch of a nil guy because i figured it was big enough to give it a go and i and i was watching it and i had to pull it at three weeks um yeah and so yeah this is what i was talking about before about the whole hind leg or a saddle attached yes. to the bone 
So yes, you cannot. So I've seen, you know, serious eats and other places like, well, fine, you can't, you can't dry age at home. And they're, they're starting with a T-bone, you know, like that's what they're dry aging is an, an individual T-bone steak. I'm like, bro, it's not going to work. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's no bueno. Um, so here's my takeaway for anyone listening. If you're new, a newer hunter or you're, you've been hunting for ages, but aren't doing whole hams at a time give wet aging a shot, especially cause you'll be able to do the backstrap. You won't have to do giant chunks of it, do it for two weeks, see how you go with with the also knowing that if you put it in the freezer, it does not age. It stops the aging process. So if you actively want it to age and you can like defrost it in your fridge for two weeks, that will still age it. That was a question um, I was just going to ask you. Thank you for anticipating mm-hmm. that. Like, can you, yeah. can you do that process on either end of the freezer? You can. So as long as it's not frozen, it will start, it will resume the aging process. There is something to be said. This is again, that wonderful dichotomy between food safety and food quality. Theoretically, the faster that you can defrost meat, the better quality it'll be, even though we're told to slowly defrost it in the refrigerator, because it's also more hazardous to do it that way in terms of food safety. So, um, but yeah, I've often taken back traps out and just popped them in for at least a week in the fridge and it's got fantastic results, honestly. So I would at the very least that is so accessible um, and, and so great to at least give it a shot. Um, I would, I would definitely suggest everyone try that. And if you're more game, then go to the, perhaps the, the home refrigerator version where again, you're still, I I'm still putting my hand up for dedicated, (laughs) dedicated fridge, although it doesn't have to be fancy. I will say that she's, She's right. However, sometimes you can't do that. <laughs> sometimes you can't do that. But in which case you might have to just eat things. As, you know, it's like, it's that thing again of like, okay, that's fine. So maybe just don't do it at all. Also, also that. Yeah. Also that, that that's, uh, or, or I, I don't think that it's prohibitive as long as you have the room. And I know that's not for everyone to find a one, $200 um, fridge on secondhand and clean it out and and start by using that as your dedicated fridge. It still is going to be, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, and, and you've put, put a good point here, you know, I think dry aging is a art form. It's an artisanal craft. There's no homebrew setup that's like, oh yeah, you don't have the room and you don't have the money. Well, here, do it this way. It's like, no, nah, sorry. You're going to have to commit X amount to be able to doing it to, to some degree successfully. Right. So, so if you can't commit to that, that's totally fine. Just don't. Sorry, that's my takeaway. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I disagree with any of that. Actually, I think it's uh, a thing that can be can make wild game infinitely better. You're not going to get some of the aspect because of the fat is very different in cervids than it is in bovids. But the greatest venison I ever ate was a five week aged moose that was a Boone and Crockett moose. Like the, mm. the moose was probably over 10 years old, wow. but it was, it was correctly aged by a Canadian friend of mine. And it was, it was transcendent. It was like, this is why people love moose. And yeah. you can get that with your own game. If you do this with some thought, like this is not something to just like, oh man, I'll just do this. and you know, you could, <laughs> you could end up with either jerky or, or much, much worse. Exactly. And, 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 and that's, and, and then it comes to the fact of like, it's always fun to experiment, but there is sort of from an ethical perspective, it really is just a shame to have loss like that, um, from an animal that you've hunted. So 
that's why I guess I, I'm more likely to promote being conservative about your approach. I agree. I mean, unless you're living like, like in South Alabama, where like there's a daily bag limit on deer. There's so many of yeah, them. Yeah, or right? here at a, you know, someone's doing a, a wildlife management. It's like, yeah, oh, we just shot 50 does. Right. Don't want to come help us. <laughs> That's when you start to experiment, I guess. I guess. Well, Jess, this has been awesome. This has been, I'm, I, we could probably talk for another hour, but um, we have lives. So we do. Uh, <laughs> So let me, uh, so tell everybody how, how they can find you on the internet and both your website and social and such, and then, uh, and then take it from there. Uh, I am findable at Jess Pryles, J-E-S-S-P-R-Y-L-E-S on all of the socials. I'm probably most funniest on TikTok and Instagram, honestly, because I save a lot of my great humor. Um, it doesn't get posted to Facebook, but I'm on all of them. Um, and then if you would like to support me, um, my business is Hardcore Carnivore. Uh, we have seasonings and products for serious meat enthusiasts, and I'd love it if you'd give it a shot. Hardcore carnivore. I've actually seen that in supermarkets, so it's not just online. It's not just online. It's in Bass Pro Cabela's now, Academy Stores, uh, HEB, Bucky's if you're in Texas, um, and also Bucky's. lots of great independent retailers around the country. So hardcore carnivore, Jess Bryles. I uh, I personally dislike TikTok because it's owned by the communists, but I love Instagram. So uh, follow Jess on Instagram uh, and you will not be sad. Thank you, Hank. Appreciate it. This was lots of fun. Thanks for being on the show. You got it. Chat soon. So there you have it. Dry aging with Jess Pryles. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you for spending part of your day with us here at Hunt Gather Talk. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Filson and Forage Market and eFish. You can find me on social media, on Instagram. I am at HuntGatherCook. I am pretty active there. You can also find me at HuntGatherCook.com. That is my website, Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. And you will find hundreds and hundreds of recipes for all kinds of fish and game. You'll find pickles. You'll find preservation recipes, the whole nine there. So again, you can find me on Instagram at HuntGatherCook, or you can find me on my website at Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Thanks again. I'm Hank Shaw, and I'll talk to you soon.